As we go, you know, focusing on Christmas, you know, a lot of times we think of the traditional Christmas story, and, and it's wonderful. And this morning I wanted to look at something a little different in our message time, a story that you don't usually associate with Christmas, but I think is very relevant, because when we think of Christmas, we think of home and coming home. And when I think of a story that really illustrates that idea, it's an incredible story, parable that was told by Jesus in Luke 15. It's the story that's often known as the, the story of the prodigal son. And, um, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to, for those that, that know it, it's a reminder for those that don't, I'd like to start by reading from God's word that story, and uh, just so that we see what we're going to be talking about here today, what Jesus teaches us through this great story. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them the story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About this time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to be starved. He pers uh, persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I'm dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and because I'm no longer to be, uh, called, worthy of your, being called your son, Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned to his home, uh, home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and against you and I'm no longer being worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. And get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost and is now found. And so the party began. Let me open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come together today. Father, not only to celebrate in song, to celebrate with our children, but Father, also to be able to take this time and to reflect upon the teaching, the timeless teaching of, of your word, of your son. Father, I thank you that you have given us these truths, and I thank you that you continue to teach me in my own study, and pray that you would now speak through me and in spite of me. Father, not that the words and opinions of a man would carry any weight, they don't, but Father, somehow you would speak through a man to carry forth the, the timeless truth of your heart, of God's word. Father, help us to be open to hear what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think of Christmas, what do you think of? You know, some of us might say, well, we think of presents or we think of decorations. And, but a lot of people are going to say something like family. You know, I think of home. It's the time of year where we try to get everybody together and, and wherever that may be. I, I remember for years, I was down in Greenville, South Carolina with my family. And, um, and my family, most extended family, lived up here in Northeast Ohio. And it was always a challenge for us to somehow say, okay, we want to be here. We need to be here together to celebrate on Christmas Day. The challenge was this. I was a pastor. And therefore, I had to be at my church for Christmas Eve services. You know, so I couldn't leave until eight or nine o'clock, and we wanted to be in Akron for family celebration by the afternoon of the next day. And so we tried to figure out a way to do it. We would celebrate Christmas morning 
on the morning early on Christmas Eve. So our kids would open their presents and have time to play with their presents. And then, you know, we would get the car packed up in the afternoon. We'd go to the service. Sandy, would, my wife, would leave right after the early service and take the kids home, get them fed, get them in jammies. And by the time I got back, you know, everything was loaded up. You know, I get changed real quick. And we would get in the minivan and have a Polar Express experience. Uh, we would put the movie on in the car, and at the right time, we would stop in a hot chocolate song. We had hot chocolate. We'd break it out and serve it to the kids. When they came to the first gift of Christmas, we would pull out one more gift, and we would give it to them. And, and it was something that they really learned to value. It's somehow we made traveling all night and Christmas Eve a fun thing to do. So much so that when we moved up here and we told them, hey, we don't have to drive all night on Christmas Eve anymore, they're like, what? We're going to miss Polar Express. Like, you know, we, we want to do that. I'm like, man, we really sold that well. Um, well, we wanted to be here. We wanted to be with extended family. It's, it's a joy. They love their cousins. And, and you know, I come from a big family of you know, six kids and you know, 35 people when everybody's together. And, and it's a joy, usually, um, you know, to be extended family, most of them. Um, the fact is that in most of our families, there can be a few people that are a little challenging. And sometimes the get-togethers can maybe be as stressful as they are enjoyable. Um, and we can relate to that. In fact, I ran across a little video that I think illustrates this point well, not only the challenges that we sometimes face, but it also has some practical suggestions of what we can do about it. See if you can relate to this. Are you sick and tired of your family? Do holiday get-togethers seem unbearable? Then you need the Family Survival Kit. New from the makers of Date Be Gone and Rent-A-Kid, it's the Family Survival Kit filled with tons of family-neutralizing goodness. Like the criticism-canceling headphones. Harsh words go in, but compliments come out. Why can't you be more like your sister? She's always been here when- I am so proud. You are perfect just the way you are. I love you. Creeped out by over-affectionate dance? Not anymore with Family Off, specially formulated to repel unwanted affection. <gasps> now, how much would you pay? Never be asked for money again with the Mooch Whistle. It sounds out a high-pitched sound that only Mooches can hear. They'll be too confused to ask for anything. Undisciplined children are no problem at all with sleepy time brat darts. Just lift, aim, and blow for a whole 24 hours of brat-free living. But wait, there's more. Unsure of what to say to emotionally unavailable family members? Then let an expert say it for you with Dr. Phil in a can. Are you avoiding reality? Do you resent your children? Do you realize that this is a big problem? You can't change what you don't acknowledge. Thanks, Dr. Phil. If all else fails, use our patented nuclear family love grenade. Just pull the pin, toss it in, and let nitrous oxide put the fun back into dysfunction. So call this number and get your family survival kit today. Just three easy payments of $19.95. Order today and get the tongue cozy absolutely free. I can't taste a thing. So order yours today. Supplies limited. Price subject to change. Love grenade not legal in Utah, Hawaii, and California. Not responsible for any damage or liability associated with improper use of products. May not work on Germans, accountants, or people who are sticklers for spelling. I had a few people after the first service say, you didn't leave the phone number long enough. What's that phone number again? You know, I want to order that. I mean, we laugh in large part because we can relate. There's part of that that we understand. But I realize that maybe part of the biting part of the humor is, what if my other family members are watching that and they're thinking of me as the difficult family member, you know, and I'm the one that they want to stay with. 
And, and sometimes it's a joke, but sometimes it's also reality. You know, what if we have a conflict with a family member? There's someone we're not talking about, or we've offended someone and we worry at Christmas, am I going to be accepted? And what's, what it's going to be, what's, is this family really going to be together like we hope it to be? Well, when I think about that story of, again, coming home, it's not necessarily Christmas, but coming home, and, and that question of saying, how do we know that we're going to be accepted? I love Luke 15. I love the prodigal son. Somebody who, as a son, rejected his dad, ran away, you know, did everything he could to get as far as he could, and then decides to come home, and the big question is, how would he be received? Now, even as we look at that, let me start by asking kind of a question and introduction, and that is, when you think about Christmas, what are the most valuable Christmas gifts that you could long for? The, the Christmas treasures, the things that are most meaningful. I think when we think about that, you know, we might think of gifts, but the really deep things, the best things in life are things that we really can't buy. The things like true love and, and peace of mind, joy, transcendent joy, hope and confidence in the future of life. Now, you might be thinking, well, those, those, why do you say they're Christmas gifts? Well, because those are things we all want all the time. They're, they're not unique to Christmas. Well, in a sense, there is a uniqueness in Christmas. And that is, some of you might be familiar with the, uh, the, the tradition of Advent. You know, a little while ago, Stevie lit a candle, and many churches or homes do this, and we have Advent candles. And the Advent candles celebrate themes of Christmas. And what are they? Well, they're hope. Hope and confidence in the future of life. They're, they're peace, this peace of mind. They're joy, a transcendent joy that, that carries us through circumstances. It's, it's love, real love that you're not, you're not worried about being rejected. Those are the things that we long for, and those are the themes of Christmas. See, when we think about things of ultimate value, we look at that and we say, we long for it. The problem is, everybody wants it, but where do you get it? You can't go to the store. You can't you know, call Walmart or Target. You can't find it on, on Amazon. Uh, you know, call them up, hey, do you have any true love? Do you have any peace on the shelf? You know, you're not going to get a response. Call and try. They won't even talk to you. I tried it. They didn't. You know, it's just, uh, you know, I, I called Walmart, asked for real peace. They put me on hold. Four hours later, I finally gave up. Yeah, I called Target, you know, true love. I think they thought it was a fragrance, and they put me to the fragrance department. I called Home Depot. Hey, do you have any true love? They hung up on me. Hey, we don't have true love here. Wrong store. You know, it's, you're thinking, oh, you're being silly, Mike. I, no, I didn't really call. I thought about it. I was tempted. Um, the thing is, is that we understand that these are things that we long for. But what we do is, because we don't know where to find them, we often settle for substitutes. In fact, many of the things that we look for in Christmas are substitutes. They're ways that we're trying to get. If I buy this, if I have this, somehow I hope it's going to bring me hope or peace or joy or love. Even think about the prodigal son. What was he chasing after? I think he was chasing after love, and, and he thought that he could go party and he can find it in sex. He was facing, chasing after joy, and he thought in the parties he could somehow find it in being entertained. He was trying to find a, a, a hope and security, and he thought, well, if I could get my father's wealth, somehow I can have those things. And yet they didn't deliver. The question is, it's, not, it's wrong to pursue those things, though we're created to pursue those things. The problem is when we pursue them in the wrong thing. And what happens when we pursue them in something and it suddenly comes back dry? Do we continue to kind of squeeze the same rind even when it's not delivering any juice? Or do we recognize that maybe we're looking in the wrong place? Well, let's look at seeing how this plays out in the prodigal son. And we see that in the beginning that he made the choice to leave home. In fact, the story is really about two sons. There's an older son and a younger son. Both of them 
really um, uh, were lost in different ways. Next week, we're going to look at, if you come back next week, we're going to look at the older son. This morning, we're looking at the younger son, and we, we read something of the story that there were two sons. Verse 12, it tells us, the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Not many, a few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. Now, in choosing to leave home, what I want you to see is what he was really saying more than anything else is he was rejecting his relationship with his dad. See, he's not saying, Dad, you know, I'm tired of waiting to spend money and I want the money. This is a man that came from a wealthy family, and one of the things that becomes really clear is that he had access to the money. This dad was allowing him to be able to, to use it as needed. But what he's saying is, I want your wealth without you. I don't, if, as long as we have you in the picture, as long as I have this relationship, hey, there's some restrictions. And I don't want those restrictions. I want to be able to have all the things that I have because I think if I have wealth without you, I'm going to make better decisions how to use that money by my own rules to make me happy. So it's ultimately saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I could have your stuff without having you. What it's really showing is what he believed about the source of life. And when I mean source of life, it was where he was going to find life and fulfillment and happiness and contentment where he was going to find hope and peace and love and joy, the things that we all long for. He thought it was going to be in wealth and in freedom. He thought if he had freedom and things, then that's where he would find it. Now, the father knew, on the other hand, that the greatest wealth that he gave his son wasn't in the material possessions, it was in the relationship. And in the relationship, he's saying, there I can give you the guidelines and the principles to help you to know how to make, not make mistakes and to keep you from doing things that are going to destroy you. And the blessing was ultimately not in what the dad gave, but in the dad himself, because that was the source of all things. But the son saw the relationship as a hindrance. And it's basically, again, saying, I know how to use stuff better than you do. And if you're not around, if I could have things apart from you, I'm going to have the happiest life possible. Now, when I read that, I think of the way that sometimes many of us can approach even God. We can come to God and we can say, God, I want your blessings, but I want them on my terms. I don't want the, you know, the strings of a relationship. Even if you go back to the parable, look at what it's, the dad said to the older son in verse 31. He said this, dear son, you've always uh, stayed by me and everything that I've had with yours. And I think that he would have said that to the younger son before this as well. We have all this. We have access. But he's saying, I want your stuff without that. And his, his heart was set on the things with freedom. And that's, again, what we do with God. We come and we want the blessings of God. We want health. We want life to go well. We want our children to be healthy and happy and to prosper. We want things, and we ask God for those things. And it's not bad that we even want some of those gifts that God can give us. The problem is that when we come to a fork in the road and we say, okay, well, this is what God wants to give us, and, and here's how we can enjoy it without God's rules, by my own rules, if I'm my own God, if I don't have that relationship, and then when we make the choice and saying, God, what I really want is your stuff, I just don't want you. Because I wanna make my own calls. I wanna get away from you. I think that this is what's gonna make me happy. Basically, like the son, we say, Dad, you know, just give me my stuff and leave me alone. See, the great sin, when you look at the prodigal son, the great sin wasn't that he wasted his father's money, it wasn't what he did in parting, it wasn't that. The great sin was the rejection of the dad. 
And when we come to God, that's the ultimate thing. That's ultimately how we betray God. That's the greatest sin that we, that we can commit. Now, it's not only that, but what's amazing is that even in this rejection, he still expected his dad's generosity. And he went up to his dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me your stuff. And, and he expected his dad to do it. It's this ultimate demanding. He's basically saying, Dad, you know, I'm yours. By birth, I deserve these things. I can wish you were dead, and I still deserve all the stuff you have. Now, for starters, that's not the case. This was all his dad's stuff. There was no legal obligation to give anything to his son. In fact, in that context, everyone who would listen to Jesus would have expected the dad to basically say, you're asking what? You know, you're kicked out of the house. You get nothing. And the dad could have had every right to do that. Not only that, the son is asking a really big gift because the dad has to, this is an agricultural environment where his, his possessions were not in a bank account. It was all in his land and his livestock. The dad had to sell these things. And so here you've got this brash young man basically saying, you know, got it, you know, dad, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff and you deserve, I deserve it. You got to give it to me. And again, I see this in, in the way that we sometimes can approach God. You know, I talk to people all the time and people that have little interest in God, you know, don't really think about God much, may not go to church very often, really lives aren't aligned with God. And suddenly something bad happens. And it's like, God, why aren't you here? And they, suddenly we want to pray. Get everybody praying because I've been thinking very little of God, but I still am able to demand that, God, you should give to me what I expect. Or even there are times that I'll talk to people that just think very little of God and something bad happens and suddenly they get really angry at God. How could God do this to me? We've totally rejected a relationship, but yet still at the same time, you think that I'm right and demanding that he should give me what I expect of him. Well, there's a problem there. Now, what we see in this case is amazingly, the dad gave the son what he asked. Now, that's a really actually challenging part of the story. We're gonna, if you come back on Christmas Eve, that's what we're gonna talk about then. But he gave him really as a way of trying to reach out to the son. But we see that the effects for the son in the short run weren't good. There were consequences. You know, the dad goes and he sells, you know, a third of his property, gives it to his son, and right away, the son shows his true heart. It was all I want stuff, and I don't want you. Because what, does, what do we read? Verse 13, a few days later, short time after this happened, the son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. And again, what you see, it isn't that he wasted his money. He's like, I take everything. I just want the stuff, and I'm going to get as far away from you as I can to a distant land. And he leaves his dad. He leaves his country. He leaves everything. Now, even as we read this, it's important to realize that the people that were hearing Jesus tell this story weren't thinking that this young guy is a guy that you're rooting for. These were legalists. These were religious people. And, and from their perspective, what they're expecting is this to be a morality tale. They're expecting to be, here's a, da- a young boy that you know, took his dad's stuff, ran away, and he did this, and his life fell apart, and they're all going to sit there and say, great story, that's what we want to hear, that's what should happen to bad people. And at first, that's the way that Jesus seems to be telling it. We see in the next verse, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to be starved. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and a man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And again, now here's a Jewish guy who, you know, they thought pigs were, you know, were unclean and to feed the pigs were terrible. And not only is he feeding the pigs, but we read that he had become so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. And so here, you know, everything has fallen apart. 
And what you see is something, again, the Bible is teaching here that we know by experience that, that when we choose to walk away from God, when we choose a path of sin, it doesn't deliver on the long run. It doesn't mean that there's no satisfaction in sinful choices. There are. In short term, the Bible says that there is pleasure in a season. But it's always a short season. It, 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 it provides no long-term satisfaction. You know, it's in a sense, it's like drinking salt water. We're thirsty and we drink, and it feels like it helps for a little while, but it actually not only makes us more thirsty, but in the process kills us. And that's what's happening. And so here you have this person, and he goes out, and he's enjoying life for a short period of time, but then over time, it catches up to him. And next thing you know, he's not only a money, but then there's a famine, and he's feeding pigs, and, and he's so hungry that he's thinking even about eating from the pigs. And, and we're told that no one gave him anything, and that seems harsh, but yet... In the midst of this, that's part of what God was doing, the Father was doing. In a sense, the Father could have sent someone out to go find him and, hey, can we send you a check? Can we help you? But even in the story, there's a picture of a loving father to say, no, you want to do that? Go ahead. And here's the consequences. And sometimes God, in a sense, lets us make decisions, and then there's consequences from go from that, and God allows that, not because he's judgmental, not because he's trying to hurt us, not because he's even angry, but even as in this case, why did the father let it? Because it was the father's way of trying to get the son's attention, of just trying to say, you're making these choices, and if you get away from me, this is the consequence. Your life becomes broken, and I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to get you, in a sense, wake up to reality, to truth. And that's what you see happening here. He wakes up, and because he wakes up, he returns. Look at verse 17. It says, you know, he finally came to his senses, and he said to himself, he came to his senses, it's words that literally, he, he woke up, he saw his situation for what it was, he saw reality. And what is it that he suddenly came to his senses, that, that life wasn't good, that his, his dreams you know, didn't work? No, that was all obvious, he saw that before. What suddenly he woke up to was why he was there. He's suddenly looking at the end of the path, and he knew he was at the end of a bad path, but suddenly he realized, it's here where I took a turn. It's here, and what I need isn't just a little bit more money. What I really need is what I rejected back here is my relationship with my father. When I made that choice, I, he suddenly came to a sense as he woke up to the reality that, that he made a bad, not only a bad choice, but his beliefs were wrong. That his beliefs that I can have stuff without, the, without God and somehow that's going to bring me satisfaction. That's going to work for life. So when it talks about coming into our senses, what we need to realize is, is what he's talking about is that we come to see reality. You know what happens in life? Is that we often, we often in a sense, have dreams. We have dreams, and our dreams, like the sun, is like, if I had this, and if I had freedom, that would work. If I had this opportunity, that would work. That would make me happy. That would bring me the joy that I long for, the peace, the hope, the love. And we chase after these things, and... What happens is it doesn't work. We just find disappointment. It works for a little while, and, and ultimately we come back empty. And, and we want it to work. The problem is, is that our desire, our dream, doesn't change reality. The fact is, when we come to our senses, we realize there is a reality that God has created. And part of that is that there's a reality. God created us for relationship with him. He created moral truth, just like gravity. The reality is to say, if I, if, I, if I think that I can jump off a building and I can fly, the thing is, wake up, come to your senses. If you do that, you're going to fall. Because that's truth. That's the way the world works. 
And the reality is that God has given us truth, and that's the way that the world works. And we can go through a dream and hope and, and, and want it to be different, but suddenly sometimes God lets us fall, and suddenly in the falling, he's like, wait, come to your senses, wake up, see the reality. See the reality of the what, he, what is. And, and some, sometimes we can, well, but the problem is it is because of circumstances. So let's think about this, this boy. He can look at it and say, well, the problem is there was a famine. If there just wasn't a famine, it would be okay. But in Jesus telling the story, he's very clear. The famine didn't cause the problem. It only revealed the problem. It revealed the need. You see, if things were good, if life was okay, he could wait it out. He could persevere. It might be a little difficult, but the fact is, is that he was hungry before. Suddenly, the famine made him destitute. It wasn't his, the famine that destroyed him. It was rejection from his dad. The famine just made it more obvious. So in 30 plus years of pastoral counseling, this is something that I run into again and again and again. You know, I run into probably most often in marriage counseling. I have a couple that will come to me and they're like, oh man, we're, and they're telling us their story. And, and, and we had this crisis and this crisis, this, you know, we lost our job, we had this financial crisis, we had this problem with one of our kids, we had this happen and, and suddenly here we are and we're falling apart. And in hearing the story, what I realize is that the, the famine, the crisis didn't cause the problem. You're going through life and you have this problem, this problem, and you were barely making it. It's kind of like you were on this slow decline path towards, you know, toward the bottom, and suddenly the bottom fell out, and you fell really quick, and suddenly you woke up. And I said, the problem isn't the famine. The problem isn't that crisis. You're looking at it and saying, that's the problem. That just revealed the crisis. If you had a really healthy marriage, if things were healthy in your life, this would be hard, but you would persevere. You'd, per persevere. you'd make it through. And the thing is, God's trying to get your attention through this crisis. He's trying to get your attention through the famine to see the bigger issue. And it's not that God is sending this because he's mad at you, he's trying to hurt you. He's doing it lovingly. He's trying to say, no, you're living an unhealthy lifestyle that's leading in the wrong path. Wake up, realize it. Become aware of reality. Why? Because I want you to, to, to go back to the things that are going to ultimately satisfy, the things that are going to fulfill. And so what he does is he realizes that, and there's this, 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 this sense of brokenness that he realizes that it's ultimately going back to his problem with his dad. It's not the famine. His ultimate problem was alienation from his father. He sees it. And instead of being in despair, he says, okay, I need to go back. I need to fix where I went wrong on this path. Look at how, he, how we were told how he came to his senses. When he finally came to his senses, when he saw his reality, he said to himself, even at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I'm dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned to his home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. What a beautiful picture of grace. See, there may be some here that, again, you just realize, man, I've come to the end of myself. I'm trying, and it's not working. And, and maybe there's that crisis that suddenly makes you aware of the famine that you think that's the problem. No, it's just revealing the problem. Or it might be things are great financially, and there's another area. There's something in your heart that you know that is empty. God's trying to get your attention. And the things that you think that are, you know, God ignoring you or not listening to you, are actually God pursuing you. God's saying, I'm trying to get your attention because I don't want to just fix the symptoms. I want to deal with the core problem. And what you think are the, are the issues, they're just revealing the core problem. 
And the core issue is that we are created for relationship with God. That relationship with God is, the, in a sense, the center hole in our heart, the vacuum that we have. We need that more than anything else. And if we live through life and we try to put anything else there, we try to decide, okay, what are the things that are going to bring me hope and joy and love and peace? And, and all, all we're doing is we're getting the substitutes that work for a short period of time and ultimately lead us empty. And here what you have is the prodigal came to his senses. He realized that. And he says, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, and I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm going to just, you know, and, you know, I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And it's this incredible statement. And what he's recognizing is this was the problem that needs to be fixed. Now, part of that is we look at that and you say, that, there's humility. That's hard. How could he say something that's, that's humbling? That's, you know, there's a sense that we think of humbling ourselves and admitting that we're need is lowering ourselves. And in a sense, it is. It's admitting that I can't do it on my own. The things that I, my dreams, my wisdom, you know, I didn't think I needed you, Dad. I don't think I needed you, God. I think I could do it on my own. Man, I, I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to give up that freedom. And, but here's what I want you to think in this picture. All right, the son was humbling himself, but was he, was he losing or gaining? Right, he was humbling himself in that sense of saying, I'm gonna lower myself, but ultimately he goes from feeding pigs and wanting to eat their food to being welcomed in the home and saying, here, now you're robed, you're clothed, you're embraced, and you got the feast. Now, I'm willing to go down a little bit to go up that high. I don't know about you. And if you're saying, I'm not willing to go down that low to go up that high, then I think you've got something wrong in your thinking. And the fact is, there is a humility to it, but it's a humility that exalts us, that God raises us up. We want to know his, you know, his, his reward, and he invites us to that. He said, but what if I come to him, and I don't know if I'm going to be received. I don't know, what if I, you don't, know, you don't know how messed up I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how far away I've been from God. And here's what I want you to realize. Okay, this son comes, and he's, he's going to his dad, and you think about this. He's going back. He's, I've got this, this, this whole speech respond, and how could he ask forgiveness? And, and, and you think about this. After all that he's done, and he's thinking, how is my dad going to respond? How is he going to receive me? And I think all of the responses that he dreamed of, this one wasn't what he ever thought could happen. He re we told, read in verse 20, he returned to home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled, uh, filled with love and compassion. He ran towards his son, embraced him, and kissed him. He ran towards him, he totally accepted him, he loved him, he embraced him. The son smelled, you know, he's mere naked, he's been with the pigs, he's been, he's done everything wrong. But the son loved him, or the father loved him, and he embraced him. Why? Because of what? What the son did? No, the son didn't. He hadn't said anything yet. And the dad's already coming and embracing him. Why? Because it's about grace. God's relationship with us is about grace. You see, you know what we bring to God? It isn't, okay, well, fix yourself up, clean yourself up, shower up, make yourself good, do that, and then God will maybe accept you. No, it's about Jesus died on the cross, and we come and we bring our need and say, God, I just bring my need and my brokenness. And he comes and he says, okay, I'm going to embrace you, and I'm going to love you, I'm going to welcome you. And even the son had prepared this thing. Well, dad, I'm going to bring me back as a hired servant. And so that if I'm a hired servant, I can work my way off and pay off some of my debt, which we could never do. And the dad never even lets him get to that part of the speech. But he immediately welcomes him and he says, dad, I've sinned, I've done wrong. And he says, okay, well, let, me, let me not only welcome you, but then let me give you these gifts. And we read of these incredible gifts, but they're gifts of relationship. They're gifts, why? Because he has a relationship and has restored this relationship with his dad as a father and child. Now look at these gifts, just in closing. I want you to see what these gifts are and what they mean. 
Let's go back to what he said. He's greeted him. He's welcoming him. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. And so the party began. Now think about this. You know what these, what these gifts are? You know what they are? What, what was he longing for? What are the things we all long for? Long for love, real love. And the father welcomed him and said, I love you, not because of what you've done. You can't lose my love. I love you, but we want peace. And when he put the robe on him and he put the, feet on, the shoes on him, he said, okay, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. You don't need to worry. You're under my protection. You got my peace. And well, then he put the ring on him. And the ring wasn't just a piece of jewelry. It was a signet ring that, that actually said, okay, you're part of the family. You bear the authority of the family. That was his hope. That was his assurance of the future. He knows he was cared for. He was secure. He was looking for joy. And he said, okay, and we're going to throw this feast and we're going to have this feast and you're going to experience joy, this transcendent joy. My friends, the things that we, he longed for, the things that we long for, that's what's given. It's not in the things, it's in the relationship. And when we have the relationship, it's not about the things that God gives us. It's about the deeper, the, the deeper realities, the things that we celebrate at Christmas that we long for, hope and joy and love and peace. My friends, I want you to realize that when we look at this, it's a story, not only it's a great moral story, it's a story about a truth, about God and about us. The fact all of us have one, one time or another, we've wandered away from God. And some have realized that and we've come back and some of you might be here and it's like, man, you don't know how far away, you know, God. No, God has brought you here to invite you and say, no, I want you back. And all the time that it seemed so far away, well, no, that's my, actually my way of pursuing you. I'm inviting you to come back home. And if you think, oh, God, I don't know how he's going to respond to me, it's telling us right here, just come back home and he's going to run to you and he's going to embrace you and he's going to love you. Are you willing to come back home? It means that we come to God and it's not about how do I get your stuff, but God, I need you. I need a relationship with you. God, oh, there are the things that I've done wrong. Well, that's why Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So we tell him what we've done wrong. God forgives us and he gives us his right. God, help me to know what it means to be your son. There may be some that have wandered away. God's calling you back today. There's some that have that relationship and it's a reminder in this Christmas season, don't get distracted by all the other things, the, the, the substitutions that the world is selling. No, it's in this relationship with Christ, the more centered we are there, there we find these greatest and truest of gifts and values. My friends, I want to just close up and just invite you to say, if you're here today, I want you to know that you're here today because God is pursuing you to tell you, I love you. He's offering his love. He's offering relationship. He's offering this story, not because it's about a son that lived 2,000 years ago to a dad of an agricultural dad, you know, of, in context, but it's a story about the perfect father who loves his child. We have wandered away, and he said, okay, this is the reception that I invite you back to. We come home. We come home and in me find the joy and hope and peace and love that you desperately long for. It's there if we return. And it may just be as simple as saying, God, I admit I need it. I've, I've, I've wandered away. God, forgive me through Jesus Christ. 
God, I want that relationship. Give it to me. If, if God's even speaking to you, I'd love to talk with you today or sometime this week even more about that. But I hope that you'll cry out to him. I hope that this will be the Christmas that you come back home and you find the gifts that you desperately long for.